My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Gilbert. We're so excited that you decided to be with us this morning, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, we're glad that you're here. I just have one announcement before we're going to get into the text that we have this morning, uh, and it's coming up this Friday, so you don't have much time to respond, but if you are a dad or a grandfather or a father figure that has a daughter in your life, then I am telling you, you are not going to want to miss the daddy-daughter dance. It's coming up this Friday night. There's still time for you to be able to be there. It's going to be in the commons. Uh, I, I have boys, so I'm not going to be able to be there, but my wife is part of the team that's planning it, and she has all kinds of fun stuff ready for you, so don't miss it. Whether you have a little girl or you have an, well, I don't want to say a big girl, <laughs> or you have an older daughter, this would be a great thing for you to be able to uh, show up and have a good time and dance and laugh and uh, enjoy your church family. All right, let's continue. We're going to keep going in the Gospel of John this morning. Just to remind us where we are, last week, we're right in the middle of John chapter 18, and last week, we saw, as Pastor Paul led us through the story of how Jesus, following the Passover meal he shares with his disciples, goes, leaves the city across the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane in the olive trees across the hills from Jerusalem. And it's there in that place that the Jewish authorities and soldiers being led by Judas, Jesus' disciple who has betrayed him, come and they arrest Jesus. And they drag him back to Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and they have kind of a mock trial. I call it a mock trial because typically the trials that are on the up and up don't happen at 2 a.m. when no one is around to witness it, but that's what they're involved in doing. And we're going to pick up right where that story le leads off, and we're going to be looking at really how John 18 has an examination of power, self-preservation, and the truth. Uh, it's really important for me that we take a moment here before we get going to pray because I've, I've done preparation and gotten ready to be able to teach this morning, but unless the Holy Spirit meets us, this is nothing more than an intellectual exercise, and there's plenty of places we can do that. We're going to meet God in this place, and we hope that he'll meet us, so let's ask him to do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to be able to set aside to seek you. God, we want to hear from you this morning. God, I want you to use me in my preparation to be able to shape this congregation and these people and this community. We want to be more like Jesus, and yet we need the Holy Spirit and your intervention in our lives and you to meet us here this morning for that to happen. So we invite you and we ask you to be here with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up right here in the middle of John 18. Here's what it says. Then the G Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Okay, we're just going to stop right there at the first uh, sentence because I want to start giving you a little bit of context as we go here. So the Caiaphas would have been the high priest for the term that Pilate, who we're going to get to later uh, over this time in uh, Israel's rule. And so they have taken Jesus from Caiaphas's house, which would have been a nice house, you probably might call it a palace, off the site of the temple grounds, coming to the temple at the top of Jerusalem at the hill. Uh, and what, this is what's really interesting about it is that from the Jewish perspective, Caiaphas would have been at the highest position of leadership in their community. And yet the Roman authority who is there is actually the one that sits on the temple grounds. The temple was built at the highest point in Jerusalem as a symbol of God's sovereignty over his people at the top of the hill. And when King Herod and the following Roman leaders came in, they built 
a palace right on the top of the wall overlooking the temple grounds. You can imagine the psychological impact that that has. You think that you're in charge and this is the pinnacle of your experience as a people. Let us park right on top of it. And so when Caiaphas, who's the guy in charge, wants to bring Jesus before the governor of the area, he has to go up to the temple grounds and climb the steps on the top of the Western Wall to the palace to meet him there. Now it says, by now it was early morning. Uh, Now, when you're reading the story, we have, it's the middle of the night that this all goes down. And then we have Peter denying he knows Jesus. And then the rooster crows. So it's very early in the morning. And you think, how in the world did these guys have the guts, the chutzpah to wander up to the governor's palace doors in the middle of the night to ask for an audience? This actually was probably fairly normal. In Roman culture, especially among the Roman elites, there was a culture of starting your workday very early. So 4 or 5 a.m. is when the first meetings would begin with Roman authorities. And they'd be done for the day by 10 a.m. They were really stretching it by lunch. They'd be wrapping up. So this isn't that unusual. What it essentially means is we're going to be the first ones in line to get the business of the day taken care of. So they show up there at the top of the hill over the western wall of the temple to meet at the governor's mansion. Now, this is what it says. And to avoid, avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. The Jewish faith very clearly said that it was considered unclean to enter into the home of a Gentile, which this Roman governor would have been considered. And so in order to not offend their religious sensibilities and to keep themselves unsullied so that they could celebrate their religious activity this weekend, they stand outside and they will not go inside, which is wonderfully ironic. In fact, it just reaffirms this idea of being whitewashed tombs. They call it the action of the whitewashed tombs. What do they do? Jesus, back in, uh, we have it recorded in Matthew, he confronts the Jewish leadership. And here's what he says to them. You're like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And what better example do we need of this than this moment in which they are unjustly arresting a man, accusing him of things he has not done, bringing him before the Roman authorities with an attempt to get him murdered, and everyone involved knows it's unjust. And yet... We don't want to be unsullied. We don't want to offend God in any way, so we won't come into the guy's house. We'll murder the son of God, but we aren't going to step in your foyer. These guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And it's a great reminder for us. Cleanliness is not about your religious attitudes or activities, but what you do with Jesus. And this is not just a truth for those authorities in that day. This is true for us. It can be very easy to be lulled into this idea that if you're attending church regularly, if you're serving in your community, if you're giving to people, if you read your Bible, if you check all the right religious boxes, therefore you must be clean. And I'm just telling you that that is not the story that the scripture tells us. The story that the scripture tells us is your cleanliness is determined by how you treat Jesus. What do you do with the figure of the Nazarene. What do you do with the Son of God? These religious leaders have made it clear they want nothing to do with him. 
The text goes on to say, so Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? He's been bound and he's being presented before the military authority in that place. He asked them, what charges are you bringing? It's probably helpful for us to understand Pilate. Pilate is a very interesting character because and I made this offer at the previous service and I'm gonna make it to you too. If you can find an example where I'm wrong, I'd love to hear it afterwards. But I think, based on what I've looked at, I think this might be the first and really only interaction that Jesus has with any Gentile in the gospels, anyone outside of the nation of Israel. And we get his name and his position. So obviously he's an important character. Well, we should probably know who he is. Here he is, Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea. He was given this position from uh, 26 AD to 36 AD. Now remember this, uh, this occurrence right here with Jesus is happening right around 33 AD. So it's about seven-ish years after uh, Pilate has taken on this position. And it's also helpful to remember that for us who really only looks back to this part of history and this part of the world through the lens of the Bible, we can get a little bit confused about the significance of Jerusalem and Israel in particular, because to us, it's massive and big and it's part of the story. But in its day and in the Roman Empire, this is a insignificant backwater that just happens to be placed on trade routes. So we have to care about it and we have to defend it. Pilate is the governor of this area. He's actually moved from being a military commander to an administrator. He's gotten a promotion. He's spent time in the Roman uh, military. He's been out on leading as a general military conquest in kind of small places. And he's finally gotten his chance to move out of being with the boys out on the field to being in the palace and being part of administration. And things don't change very much because just like for many of us, it's not what you know, it's who you know that got Pilate this job. Pilate is widely believed to have gotten this job because of a relationship that he had with another military man by the name of Sejanus. Sejanus was the captain of the Praetorian Guard. Now, if you're not familiar with that, that's fine. I'll explain it to you. That's why I'm here. The Praetorian Guard is something like a combination of the Secret Service and the Navy SEALs. These are the military elite of Rome, and they are assigned to the Roman capital and specifically to, towards defense uh, and protection of the emperor. And Sejanus has become the head of the Praetorian Guard. And over time, he becomes the number one uh, confidant and trusted advisor of the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius is uh, known to be a very reluctant emperor. He actually didn't want the position. He's kind of a dejected, depressed kind of personality. He's not very interested in leadership. And so Sejanus offers him a great partnership. This guy's a strong man, he's a man of action, and he's the guy that's whispering into Tiberius's ear all the time, giving him advice, telling him what to do and where to move. And Pilate, through the military activity that he's had, knows Sejanus, and so he gives him an opportunity. Hey, Sejanus is doing what you'd wanna do. He's building himself trusted allies around him. And so he takes Pilate from the military and he gives him a job in administration in this place in Judea. And you go, what a great gig, kinda. <laughs> Because here's the reality about Judea. It's not a very fun place to be. Here's just a little bit of an overview of history. 332, Alexander the Great comes in and defeats the Persians. And he leaves the religious activity of Israel intact in that place because he has a vision before he gets there in which men in white would meet him. And when he shows up, the priests actually come out and meet him at the gate. And he offers 
uh, worship to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he goes right around Israel and lets them continue in their worship and in their culture and in their style. And that's significant because that decision that Alexander the Great that makes under the influence of God continues Israel's tradition of being an autonomous religious community in the midst of a homogenized empire. In 166, as the Greeks try to bring them into the fold, they start doing things which they don't quite understand really offend Jewish sensibilities. They set up uh, statues in the temple and they try to dedicate the temple to their gods and they have no place for that and they cause a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. If you ever hear of Hanukkah, it's celebrating this moment. And they overthrow the regional emperor and become their own kingdom for a long period of time until 37 BC. This is when the Romans come in and they finally consolidate the area. It's when King Herod would become the guy who was kind of in charge, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder. The thing about Herod that's really unique is that Herod did not grow up in Judea and Jerusalem, but he is Jewish. So he does a bunch of stuff in Judea as its king, which actually in some ways uh, bolsters the worship there in Israel, including rebuilding the temple and making it great. And this palace that we find Pilate in, in this text, is Herod's palace that he built right there. In 6 AD, uh, so this is what, 25 years or so, rough, right before this time, they're attempting to bring in a census because really Roman rule over an area like this is about one thing, cash, money. They're trying to figure out who lives here, how much land do they own, how many people are in their family because we need our taxes. And that, taxes, that taxation causes another revolt. <laughs> they start a war and it's all kinds of chaos that's going on. In the years past Herod, there's been five governors between that time and where we have Pilate, Pilate's the fifth, that have come through. And the first three have very short rule because it's chaotic, there's violence, there's overthrows. The guy right before Pilate does a decent job. He has about a 10-year stint in stabilizing things and then Pilate comes in. Now, Pilate, in an effort to really ingratiate himself with the guy who gave him a job, starts trying to bring in Roman stuff into Jerusalem again and causes more chaos. There's fighting, there's arguing, there's uh, riots that are breaking out in the city, and Pilate is kind of stuck in this situation. And three years before this, Pilate makes a, a, a move that really leads us to this moment we have right here. Pilate orders that the Jews who have held the ability to hold their own court and, in the case of blasphemy, execute people. He takes that away from them. And the reason that he takes that away from them is because he's making political calculus. If their rulers can hold the power of life and death over their people, they will hold sway. I and the Roman Empire will be the one alone who can punish with death, okay? Now, there's one, that's a lot of history. If you're into history, you just got excited. If you're not into history, you just glazed over. I got one more thing that'll hopefully be helpful for you. A year and a half before this very moment, Sejanus, the guy who got Pilate the job, the guy that had been consolidating power and putting all of his guys in key leadership positions, Tiberius discovers a plot to overthrow his authority and take over as the emperor, and he's declared treasonous. He's strangled and his body is thrown down the steps in front of the palace in Rome and the dogs eat him. That's a year and a half ago. So now the reason I think that's important for us is because you have to put in mind, now you have Pilate 
who's ruling over a crazy, difficult to understand, often violent, revolutionary part of the country, and his guy who had his back has now been accused of being a traitor and he's been executed in the most humiliating way. Pilate is in a hard spot right here because Pilate needs to keep his head down, he needs to keep the peace, and he needs to not be accused of also being a traitor like his buddy. And it's in that scene that we have Pilate showing up and saying, okay, what are the charges you have against this guy? What, what is happening right here? This gives you a little bit of an idea of the, the Jewish authorities' attitude towards Pilate. Listen to the way they respond. When he says, what are the charges? They say, if he wasn't a criminal, would we have given him to you? You don't tend to give lip to the guy in charge unless you have a little bit of a problem with him and his leadership and think you might have some power over him. What kind of power do they have? Well, hopefully we'll find out here. Pilate says to him, well, why don't you take him yourself and judge him by your own law? You have no problem making judgments on people. And they say, well, only if you hadn't have taken away our power to kill. We don't have the right to execute anyone, oh, wise one. You wanted that for yourself. And they objected, we can't do it. We can't do it because you made a decision. Here's the thing about Pilate. Pilate would not have spent his time in Jerusalem for any length of time. Rome had a hard time understanding Jewish culture. This was a fervently cultic religious expression in their mind. They, They were very pragmatic people, the Romans. They believed in power and peace as exercised through power. And when they come to Israel, they have this weird interaction in which they are highly offended by anything that smells of giving authority or giving homage to anyone other than Yahweh. The entire Roman Empire works by essentially, we'll let you do whatever you want as long as you all agree that Rome's in charge, the emperor's in charge. And Israel's this weird place where they say, we will fight to our deaths to never have to say that. So Pilate would not have spent much time in Jerusalem. In fact, Pilate spent most of his time in Caesarea. It's about 100 miles or 100 kilometers northwest of here on the coast. It was where there was a beautiful palace that Herod had built right on the Mediterranean Sea. There was a port there. It would have been a wealthy, modern Roman city. That's where he spent most of his time unless there was a religious festival going on in Jerusalem. And he didn't come because he wanted to participate in the festival. He came because his job as governor was not, he wasn't pushing papers and passing bills. He was essentially the police force and the justice system. He was there to make sure trouble didn't break out. And that was exhausting. He had to go to this backwoods country place and deal with these people he didn't understand and they're causing him problems all the time. And here he is, they bring this guy to him. Not only that, but this gospel doesn't include it, but Matthew's gospel does. It Right in the middle of this happening, Matthew's gospel tells us that his wife sends him a note. And the note shows up and he looks at it and it says, I just had a dream last night that things are gonna go really bad if you do something with this guy, have nothing to do with him. There's a lot of pressure on Pilate right now. Pilate's trying to figure out what to do about this. And this really shows us the difference between the Jewish authority, the Roman authority, and Jesus's authority. Just last week, we heard how Peter tried to take up the sword to defend 
his king, Jesus. And Jesus shuts him down and says, that is not the way we do it in my kingdom. We, because if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And what we are seeing here in an ironic twist is Pilate who wanted to reserve the sword for himself to give himself power has now put himself in a place where he cannot win. Any decision he makes is a bad one in this situation if he's looking at it from a pragmatic situation. He says, I am choosing to live by the sword and now I'm gonna die by it because I don't know what to do. This is the beauty of it. It seems like it's out of control. How is this working? It says this is all working exactly the way Jesus hoped it would. Here's what the text says. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was gonna die. Why is that significant? If the Jews had convicted him of blasphemy, which is what they wanted to do, he claimed he was God, that's what they said they were so angry about, they would have killed him by stoning, throwing rocks at him until he died. Jesus said in John 12, now's the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was directly referencing the way he was going to die and how this was gonna reunite the world. And he was referencing directly the prophet Isaiah who hundreds and hundreds of years earlier had talked about the Messiah and said this, he will act wisely and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. They expected when they heard that prophecy that that meant he was gonna sit on a throne high above everyone else. And Jesus knew what he meant is he would be lifted up on a cross by the Roman Empire. This is not out of Jesus's control. It's exactly what he's intending to have happen is happening. Sorry. Pilate then goes back into the palace and he calls Jesus over to him and he says, Okay, I think I'm making an assessment here. We have to remember, although it's tempting to think that Pilate is only getting his information from the Jewish authorities, that's not true. He's been there for the entirety of this religious ceremony, which means the four or five days earlier when Jesus rode his donkey into Jerusalem and all of the people from the countryside came and they chanted and they waved their palm fronds and they said, the king is here. Pilate was aware of that. He understood what was going on. He had people in the street who were informing him. And so when the Jewish authority refuses to tell him what's going on, he says, okay, well, let's just cut to the chase. I know what's going on. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your deal? Pilate's trying to assess what's happening on. He's making a threat assessment. And from Pilate's perspective, the biggest threat that could come at him would be that this guy would claim that he is the king over this weird regional area that really doesn't matter that much. That's the biggest threat he can come up with. Do you think you're the king of the Jews? Jesus is gonna make a claim that he's something much, much, much bigger than that. I love that Jesus, in the midst of this chaotic moment in which his life hangs on the balance, Jesus completely understands what he's facing right here. He's standing before the highest authority in the area, the one that has power over life and death and can convict him to being murdered in the most brutal way possible. And Jesus does not do what I would do, which was scramble. Instead, Jesus interacts with Pilate in a way that is incredible. And here's what he says. Is that your idea about me or have people been talking about me? He, he makes an invitation. He, he extends an olive branch to Pilate in this moment to say, do you wanna have a conversation about who I really am? Or are you just processing this through what you're hearing? 
And this is a question that I think hangs over the life of almost every Christian. And I would say, particularly if you grew up in the church. I grew up in church. My parents became Christians when I was a toddler. And so my entire life that I remember, I grew up in the church. We were at church every Sunday. I was involved in youth group. I was at a private Christian school and elementary school. And there came a moment in my life when this question was poised to me. Is this your idea about Jesus? Or is this what others are saying about me? My kids who have the blessing of growing up in this church, they were born here and they're being raised here and they have that weird experience where their dad is up here preaching and they're in the crowd. They're gonna have to answer this same question at some point. Is this what you're saying about me or is this what people are saying about me? And really, even if you claim to be a Christian, this is a question you need to be asking yourself all the time because there's a lot of voices out there in our culture and in our world and in the church who claim to be speaking on behalf of Jesus. And the question that we have to ask is, is what they're saying about him who he really is? Or are they demonstrating a version of Jesus that isn't the Jesus the scriptures talk about? Because I hear a lot of people saying things about Jesus and about what his intentions are. And I wonder, is is that the Jesus that the scriptures talk about? Because I don't see a defiant, angry Jesus here. I don't see a revolutionary Jesus here. I see a human Jesus who's interacting eye to eye with Pilate and offering him the hope that only Jesus can bring. Pilate does not take the bait. Jesus offers the olive branch and Pilate smacks it out of his hand and he says, am I a Jew? I don't know. Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What did you do? Jesus offers to have a legitimate conversation about who he really is. And he said, you got to be kidding me. I have to deal with all this chaos. I don't understand these people in the least. I am not a Jew. I don't get it. What is the deal? Why are they bringing you to me? Obviously, you've done something to offend them. What is it? Jesus' response is beautiful. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, my servants would have fought to avoid my arrest, to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. And just like that, Pilate feels like he understands who Jesus is. Because he's able to put him in a category that's easily defensible and understandable. It was very common in Roman culture to have philosophers and poets and thinkers and orators and argue people who specialized in debate and they would spend all day in the Aragopolis talking about their ideas. Now, I don't know this about Pilate, but I'm guessing as a military man who had some modicum of success, I'm guessing he didn't have a high tolerance for that kind of person the philosophical guy who sat around and talked about his ideals all day, but he understood who they were. And when he hears Jesus say this, oh, your kingdom's from another world, I get it, I know who you are. You're a a philosopher, mystic, poet guy. Great, okay, I know how to deal with that. I know what to do with that. I understand that. I can put that in a box that I can wrestle with. This is the reality for all of us we oftentimes want to take the Jesus that we find in the scriptures and put him in a box that we can make sense of. And I'm just here to tell you, Jesus will not fit your mold. 
If you've created a Jesus for yourself that defends all of your positions and really backs up all the things that you care about, you've domesticated him and you've tamed him and you've put him in a place where you can access him when it really makes it work out for you, I'm just telling you, whoever you have in that box, it ain't Jesus. It's somebody that probably looks a lot like you and you just gave him the name Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit into the mold. And even when he explains to Pilate who he really is, and he's trying to offer to Pilate a window into the reality that exists behind his claims, Pilate just shuts off and says, I know what to do with that. I'm gonna put him in this box. I'm gonna make sense of who he is. And that's not Jesus. Pilate says, ah, I got it. So you are a king. You're a philosopher king. You're a mystical king. You're a poet king. I get it. You're a king. Great. Jesus says, you, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason that I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate is dismissing Jesus. He's minimizing Jesus. He's putting Jesus into a small category that he can understand. And Jesus refuses to be frustrated. Instead, he re-extends the olive branch. I come bearing witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Now he's condemning the authorities who are outside because it's very clear they have not listened. In fact, Jesus' defense to them was, you've heard everything that I've taught. Everything I've said, I've said it in public. What are you so upset about? All I'm doing is claiming the truth and you refuse to listen. And he says to Pilate, if you... If you want to hear the truth, I'm here. I'm here to testify about it. And Pilate responds, what's truth? I love that it says he retorted because it doesn't give us an option to say that Pilate's going to have a philosophical conversation with Jesus about the nature of truth. He retorts, what is truth? This hardened military man who's stuck in a bind of politics and the reality of the world that he's existing in has no place for a philosophical discussion about truth. Get out of here. I gotta survive. I don't have time to talk about truth. As we get ready to close here this morning, I need us to have a conversation about truth, the truth that Jesus claims. If you know me, if you're a friend of mine, you know some things about me, and one of the things you might know is that I'm a nerd. I like nerdy things. I've uh, been caught reading books on physics for fun before. Um, and this, if, if you're unfamiliar, if, if you're so far on the other side of the nerd scale that you're like, who's that guy? That's Albert Einstein. Uh, just a tip for you, if you wanna look dapper, stick a pipe in your mouth and you're like halfway there. Uh, it doesn't matter if you didn't comb your hair, you'll look cool. Albert Einstein is arguably the greatest scientific mind of the last 500 years undoubtedly the greatest scientific mind of the last hundred. Uh, and he gave us all kinds of insights that were absolutely groundbreaking in the field of science. He helped us understand that light was both a wave and particles, and we understood photons. He helped us understand gravity and how gravity actually warps space-time and how when you travel with speed, the faster you go, the more relative time is based on your... You guys following me? He, he helped us understand electromagnetic fields and electromagnetic waves, and he helped us understand radiation and all, how all these things. Now, here's the problem. Now, all of that stuff is incredible. Einstein won a Nobel Prize for science, and he, was, he probably could have won three or four more uh, if they allowed that. But the problem that haunted Einstein to his death 
was this idea that all of those things that he made sense of did not seem like they related to each other. They were all answering questions about the fundamental way that the universe worked, but there didn't seem to be an undergirding logic to it all. And so he was in pursuit till the day he died of what he called a unified field theory, saying all these things I've discovered and made sense of, certainly there must be an underlying truth under them all that weds them together and makes sense of the whole thing. Einstein, unfortunately, died before ever discovering unified field theory. And even today, to this moment, there are scientists who have given their entire lives towards trying to discover what is the undergirding truth that will unify everything we know about physics in the universe. Stephen Hawking, who you may know, uh, it was a scientist of the last part of the 20th century. He was a brilliant uh, theoretical physicist and also an avowed atheist. But here's what he said about this idea, the quest for truth. Even if there is only one possible unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the question of why there should be a universe for that model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Hawking understood that even if we found a universal undergirding mathematical theory that answered how all these things related to each other, it didn't answer the ultimate question of why. Why does it exist in the first place? They're searching for truth and understanding, but even he understands there is a finite level at which we can reach the truth. And now you might go, I don't understand what you're talking about. I get it. They've made all kinds of progress in this direction. It's where you get things like quantum theory and string theory and all that kind of stuff that they're talking about is an attempt to understand this. And Hawking says, even if we get there, it doesn't answer the ultimate question. Why does it all exist to begin with. And now you go, I'm not a physicist. I'm not trying to figure all this stuff out. No, but you are trying to make sense and build your own unified field theory. We'll call it your unified life theory. How does my family work? How does my home work? How does my engagement in my community work? How does my future work? How do my children work? How, do my how does my family work? How do my politics work? How do I engage in social media? And how do I build some sort of a unified theory that makes all of my life make sense? I'm telling you right now, there is one answer to that question. His name is Jesus. There's a reason that we as a church state all of life is all for Jesus because Jesus is the unifying life theory that we live by. It's the claim that Jesus is making in this moment. You want to find out what is true, it's me. I'm here to testify. I'm here to weave all of your questions together into one answer that makes sense. I'm sorry, makes sense of the world you're living in. I got a little excited there. <laughs> and he says, if you're a person of the truth, you'll hear my voice. If you're a person of the truth, you'll hear my voice. That leaves us with what I think are two questions that we have to wrestle with. The first one is this. If you claim to follow Jesus, are you listening to his voice? Because this is what we know. Who you listen to shapes you. And this is what Jesus said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the undergirding reality that stands under all things. Are you listening to him? Because you are what you listen to. 
And I don't wanna leave this in some theoretical thing where you're going, well, I don't know who I listen to. I'm gonna ask you right now, are the voices that you listen to into your day-to-day life, are they encouraging you to pursue the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bear witness to, or are they driving you to something else? Are they shaping you in a different way? I'm gonna ask you a more pointed question. Are the voices that you're listening to building for you a pile of enemies to be fought against or building for you a life of love, a life of mission, a life of the kingdom? Some of you just need to hear it flat. Some of you need to shut off the news. Some of you need to stop listening to the podcast that you're listening to. Some of you need to turn down the voices that are shaping the way you view the world. If that's you, repent, turn away. Listen to the voice of Jesus. He's quiet, he whispers, he's humble, he offers a branch of peace even to his enemies who wish him harm. That's the Jesus we follow. Do the voices that you listen to drive you to be more like Jesus? or to be more like a kind of Jesus that you heard someone tell you about. It's something we all have to wrestle with because our world is becoming increasingly divided, increasingly hostile. We're becoming increasingly defined by our enemies and those who we dislike. That's not the way of Jesus. We need to be something else. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't know that I've ever heard his voice, I just wanna ask you, do you hear it this morning? Because he's whispering even now across these pages. He's offering that same olive branch that he offered to Pilate to you this morning. You can hear his voice. You can enter into a kingdom that defines the truth that undergirds the entirety of the universe and everything that exists within it. That's the promise of Jesus. You can hear his voice this morning and you can respond in the simple way that he asks you to respond, faith and confession. If you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then you can enter into his kingdom. And all it requires is saying with your mouth and with your heart that it's true. And then he's faithful because his voice will shape you as you move forward and will help shape each other as we move forward. Let's pray that he'll meet us here this morning. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his witness. God, we thank you for his willingness to stand right in the middle of the chaotic, violent reality of the tension between the Jewish authority and the Roman authority, and he offers the kingdom. God, our world is no less chaotic than that one was. And Jesus stands in front of us and in front of our culture, in front of our nation and in front of us individually. And he offers us the same olive branch of hope. Listen to my voice. I come to bear witness to the truth. God, let us hear you. Let us hear your voice. We pray this in the name of Jesus who we love. Amen.